1: Matthew 26, so I want to refer back to a verse that I left off with on Sunday, and we looked at it both Sunday morning and Sunday night, as we are in a new series, God's Design for Man. What did God do in the design of man as far as how he desired for us to function? Even because of the fall, obviously affecting that plan initially, I mean, know God didn't change his mind. And now through Jesus, he's given the ability for every one of us to walk in that design, that actual awesome, incredible, perfect design of God in our lives. And we can do so according to Scripture. So in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, just referring to this one of our primary verses, we clearly see, and I know most in this church know this, obviously we've taught it for many years in our church, that we are a spirit, we have a soul, and we live in a body. We are a three-part being just like our God. And so our God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We are spirit, soul, and body. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says that he desires that we be preserved blameless at the coming of Jesus, both spirit, soul, and body. We talked about the importance in the context of creation back in the book of Genesis, of how God created us in his image, and actually it was not the Father, it was God, which was God, the Father, God, the Son, and God, the Holy Spirit. He said, let us make man in our image. Not let me, the Father, make man in my image. Let us, us, God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit make man in our image. And making us in his image, he created us therefore to do what? Function like him. Mm -hmm. Say, I am am supposed to function function like my my God. So to function like our God, how does he function? All three parts working together as one. And that's what he created for us of what Dr. Summerall in his uh, uh, actual teaching on this called the total man. We were, in, we were literally in essence incomplete after we died spiritually because a part of us was no longer alive. Our spirit man was dead. We had our souls still in our bodies, our soul, mind, will, and emotion, our bodies carrying out whatever our souls told it to do. But you and I now born again can go back to connecting with our spirit man dominating our soul and our body carrying that out and by doing so what do we walk in we walk into dominion that he talked about we looked at psalm 8 remember david said what's man that you're mindful of him but you created him to have dominion over the works of his hands genesis revealed clearly again in chapter one when god created man he told him that he was to have dominion over the earth and subdue it so how does god function in dominion by all three parts of him working together you have God the Father who originates what what is to be done. You have Jesus the Word who being spoken begins to obviously bring forth what God said, and the Holy Spirit connects with that word and he does what? Brings it to pass. Power God brings into operation. For us to function in the way that God created us to function, we're supposed to function now as a total man. That we go back to God's original design of functioning out of our spirit through our soul into our body. What we have to learn to do now because as a fallen being guess where you function out of your soul you function out of your mind your will and your emotions if you and i function solely out of our mind will and emotions our soul without the leadership without the guidance without the help of the holy spirit and our spirit band making those decisions we've fallen back to the lower nature we've gone back to the old adamic nature So this is something that Dr. Summerall lived out and taught for years. If you're functioning out of your soul alone without the spirit dominating, you're now back into your lower nature, that fallen Adamic nature. But thank God we don't have to. We can learn how to get our spirit back in the position of dominance. And the way he describes it is, your spirit is to be the king. Now we're not taking the place of Jesus as the king of kings, that's not what he's saying. He's talking about in rulership of your life. Your your spirit is to be the king, the dominant one. Your soul is now to be the servant to the actual spirit that's within you, your spirit, man. Your body is always gonna be a slave to whatever your soul tells it to do. Your body doesn't do anything on its own. It doesn't have a will. It just carries out orders. It just does whatever your soul tells it to do. So the body will have no problem getting in line if we deal with the aspect of what we gotta do to obviously offer it as a living sacrifice, acknowledging that our soul is not doing its own thing, but we are now submitted to our spirit man. And when our spirit man dominates, and now our soul serves our spirit man, guess where we're actually getting all of our information from? God the Father, the Holy Spirit who lives in us. You're going to see that really clear in a picture tonight that I'm going to show you of what God did to reveal part of this to us in the New Testament. So in, in uh, Matthew 26, I didn't get a chance to get to this on Sunday night, we get to see this in the life of Jesus. Jesus. Jesus will give us an example here of functioning the way we're supposed to. Spirit-dominated, soul in subjection, body carrying out what the Father wanted him to do. Jesus knew clearly. I mean, constantly talked about it to his disciples. Jesus knew clearly when he began his earthly ministry, probably even somewhat before that maybe, but for sure at the point by the time he started his earthly ministry at 30, he knew he was going to die. He told his disciples over and over and over again, and I mean point blank, when he, when he knew he was going to Jerusalem for the last time, when they were out at Bethany, he sat with his disciples and he told them, listen, the son of man's about to be betrayed into the hands of men. He told them everything that would happen. He even said, after three days, I'll be raised from the dead. So he did not hide this from his disciples at all. They not having the Holy Spirit living in them to reveal this, they didn't get it. They didn't pick up on it. They didn't really understand that to the degree that he was trying to teach them this. So clearly Jesus never hid the fact that he was gonna actually go and die for our sin. We see this here in the book of Matthew 26. Now, this is talking about here very clearly in Matthew chapter 26. He is talking here about the very fact that he's about to, again, go to the cross and die, and this is before they go into uh, the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray, and we're going to see an example that will help us. So I want you to notice this. In verse 31, Jesus said to his disciples, All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written... I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So he's telling them very clearly, that you know, in in, in a sense here, kind of in a figurative language, true, but he's already told them multiple times he was going to go give his life. So he's just referring back to what he's already told them. As prophesied from the Old Testament, they're going to strike the shepherd. They're going to take the shepherd away from the disciples. They're going to kill him and all of the sheep will be what? Scattered all his disciples will be scattered. Notice verse 32. But, but after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Now, that is clearly not talking about down the road somewhere in the eternity to come. I mean, to go to Galilee is obviously back to where they spent most of their time. So here he is even telling them that he's going to be raised from the dead after this happens. And he will go before them to Galilee, obviously to meet with them there. Verse thirty-three. So Peter answered, and he said to him, "Even if you're made to stumble, uh, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble." Don't you love Peter? Yeah. I mean, he spoke out pretty bold sometimes, beyond what he understood. But he so loved Jesus. I mean, he so loved Jesus, man, that he was just saying, "I'm devoted to you. I'm not back," and he didn't. You know, he, he never did. He never did quit on Jesus. Yeah, he denied him three times and not really knowing what was going on at the time. But he obviously followed his walk out with Jesus for the rest of his life. 34, Jesus turned and he said to Peter, Assuredly I say to you that this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now just imagine how bad he felt when that happened. Imagine when that actually occurred and then he heard that rooster crow, of understanding that those those actual words came to pass, that was a heartbreaker for him. Peter then said to him in verse 35, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you, and so said all the disciples. Sometimes we make statements we don't even realize what we're saying, and after the fact realize that we were talking a little bit beyond what we knew, Or a little bit beyond what we understood. Aren't you glad God is gracious and he's merciful? So now if you go back here to verse 36, notice it says, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, again, does Jesus know he's going to die? Did he not just tell them that? Did he not also just tell them that he would be raised from the dead? Yeah. Yeah, so he already knows all this. Why is he going to Gethsemane? Because he's trying to teach us something. He's trying to help us with something. He's trying to help us recognize how we're to function by giving us an example at the most challenging time of his life to realize that he's going to be for the first time separated from the presence of God. Not to mention the pain and suffering obviously as well on the cross. That's not like saying that was a little thing. If you look into what doctors have said about the crucifixion of Jesus, man, I'm going to tell you what, you can't hardly think of, a more excruciating, excruciating, painful way to die uh, than the way that they obviously died on a cross. Besides that, not only the cross. What about the scourging before, that he almost was killed from? That most people died from just from the scourging alone. So I want you to notice this very important. So they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, verse 36. Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, You sit here while I go pray over there. And he told that to all the 12, but then he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Began to be. Began to be. Now remember, if you remember this, when Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan 40 days and 40 nights, right? After that, what did Satan say? He left for a more opportune time. So guess what this is? This is the opportune time. He's coming back with one last shot, one last temptation to see if he can do what? Stop Jesus from carrying out what is the will of God, what is the plan of God. The fact he'd been saying it now for quite some time, guess what the devil knew? This is, this is what he's going to try to do to fulfill the will of God. To some degree, he certainly had to know that because here he's trying to tempt him to not do that. So watch this. It says here very clearly that he took with him Peter, James, and John 38. He said to them, my soul. What part of him? His soul. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. So here we are, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, himself declaring that his soul, mind, will, and emotions is experiencing the emotion of sorrow so much so even to the point of death uh, actually thinking about death so realize this this is Jesus showing us something about the soul in dealing with the whole man is his soul going to now take over is his soul now going to decide what he's going to do or is he going to carry out from his spirit what he knows the father told him to do so he already knows in his heart, his spirit, what the father's told him to do. Now the soul being tempted, when, this is important to understand. When Satan tempts you, he's not like God. When God relates to you, he relates to your spirit. When, te- when Satan tempts you, he tempts you through the old nature. James tells you that. He tempts you with the old desires. So he's going to try to tempt you through the context of your soulish nature to try to get you in, into that old Adamic fallen nature. He can't tempt your spirit. Your spirit belongs to God. I said he can't tempt your spirit. Your, your spirit has no wrongful desires in it. James says he only tempts you with what obviously are your desires. Well, your spirit doesn't have any wrong desires. Where does desire come from from that context? Your soul. Your soul. So here he is in the garden trying to tempt Jesus and obviously get him off a track of what was the will of the Father. To the degree that his soul was so sorrowful, even thinking about death, but he tells them to do what? Stay here and watch with me. Now, the word watch here is simple and honest truth. I mean, it has an application to us spiritually, but you know what the word watch here means? Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. Stay awake whatever you got to do physically in other words he probably should have said get up walk around if you get tired but don't fall asleep he's not just there to obviously he doesn't really need their prayers he's trying to teach them what's going to happen when he's gone he's trying to teach them after he's out of here this is what you're going to face you're going to face times they were their their lives were threatened all the time you're going to face times your soul is going to want to obviously quit your soul is going to want to give up or your soul is going to want to go obviously the way of the old nature and not carry out what is God's plan, especially for them, of being persecuted. And so he's simply trying to show them how you don't give in to the soul and how you still walk out what your spirit man wants you to do. He's showing us a model. All through his life, he models to us how to live. And so notice this. He says here very clearly, it goes on verse 39, that he went a little farther and he fell on his face and he did what? What did he do? Tell me. Tell me what he did. He prayed. How do you pray? Well, you don't pray out of your soul and talk to God. Uh, Christians do pray out of their souls a lot of times, but that's not how you talk to God. How do you talk to God? Out of your spirit. He's your father. Your spirit communes with the father. You talk to the father out of your spirit. What does he bear witness with? Your spirit. That's what I've taught you in relationship to what the Bible says in the book of James about the effective, fervent prayer of the righteous avails much. What's effective? Effective is in line with the will of God. What's fervent? It's coming out of your heart. It's not coming out of your soul. You're not praying out of your head. See, if you, anybody could learn prayers and just repeat them. And all that is is just words out of your head. There's no power in that. Remember where dominion's released is everything's in line again. Everything's involved. So the spirit man is where it's coming from. The soul is picking up on it and speaking it out. And the body's just doing what the soul's telling it to do. So prayer is not effective if it's not coming from your spirit, man. So he clearly in, in this context is praying verse 39 to the Father. Well, what was how is he talking to the Father? Spirit to spirit. Right. So his spirit is engaged with the Father. Amen? Amen? Notice what he does. He talks to the Father, and his soul obviously carries out what his spirit knows to say, oh my father, if it is possible. Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not, not as I will, but as you will. Amen. Cup referring to the fact he's going to taste spiritual death. He's going to be separated from God. He's going to go into hell itself. And all he's saying is, he said, man, if there was some other way that this could happen, but, but, underline verse 39, last part, but, notice this, not as I will, but as what? Yes. So where is the will? Where is the will? In the soul. So here's his soul being tempted to give in to what obviously his old nature, uh, in his case, he don't have a fallen nature, but what his soulish man wants, not what his spirit knows, to give in and say, hey, I don't want to go through this. So realize you and I are going to have times in our life as a believer that if we want to walk in dominion and power and authority, we can't let our soul dominate us. We got to let our spirit man dominate. The soul's going to try to stop your spirit from doing what it wants to do. Your soul is going to try to hinder your spirit from doing what it wants to do. Satan will help try to aid that. And that's exactly what's going on here. But he clearly actually addressed his soulish nature by saying, Father, not my will. So guess what he just did? He told his soul, you're not getting your way. That's right. Come on, somebody. That's right. he, see, we need to start learning to talk to our souls more. When your soul all of a sudden wants to do its will instead of what you know your spirit knows to do, you know what what your spirit man needs to do? Say, no, soul, you're not getting your way. No, it's going to be God's way. I want the higher road. I want the higher, I don't want to walk in the lower nature. I want to continue to walk in that higher nature. That's not always easy in the natural. So he said, not my will, Father, but yours be done. So here we have Jesus, the spirit man, who's been praying to the Father, now talking to his soul in this time of prayer, to deal with his soul and say, not my will, Father, yours is going to be done. So he is a deal- he is dealing with that soulish part of him to not give in to what obviously would not be the will of the Father. Verse 40, he came back to the disciples and found them what? Sleepy. So they were already not doing what he asked them, or they were already doing what he'd asked them not to do. So when he said, watch, he just said, if you were looking up, he just said, stay awake. Now, for you and me, spiritual application, although physical as well, you can't pray to the Father while you're sleeping. I said you can't pray to the Father while you're sleeping. If you're in a major time of temptation, I would encourage you not to fall asleep. I encourage you to find a way to stay up and talk to God till you know you got an answer. But the point for me and you is all the, the phrase also means to obviously not fall asleep spiritually. Not fall asleep spiritually. But here he comes back. He finds them sleeping. Who does he talk to? Who's he talked to? Peter. Peter. Out of the three, he talks to Peter, and he said, "What could you not watch with me one hour? Watch, what? In other words, you couldn't stay awake for one hour and pray." Mm-hmm. Now I'm gonna tell you, as a believer today, if you couldn't stay awake and pray with one, for one hour, solid hour, well, I don't know how to pray for an hour. Get baptized in the Holy Ghost. Amen. Yes. It's not hard. No, it's not. If you do what, don't get, don't let your old nature take over. That's right. Let your spirit dominate. Verse 41, what does he say again? Watch and do what? Now listen carefully. Watch and pray. How do you pray? You pray from your spirit man. So what's he telling you to do? You have to deal with your old nature, and in this case, stay awake, and do what? Keep your spirit connected with the Father. You keep your spirit in dominance, connected with the Father. That's what he's doing. It's exactly what he's doing. And in doing so, what's he doing? He's not letting his soul take over. Can you see that? Yes. So he's telling them, watch and do what? Pray. Well, you, if you to pray effectively, again, you're not praying if you're praying out of your soul. Right. You're not praying if you're praying out of your head. You're praying if you're praying out of your spirit. Your soul's going to speak the words. Right. Right. Come on, somebody. But it's going to come out of your spirit, man. Right. Watch and pray. Watch. Lest you enter into what? Yes. Temptation. Now, what temptation? Let me explain. It would include include aspects of temptation to sin, but that's not the issue here. That's not what he's dealing with. What is the temptation here? To get out of the will of God. To get out of the will of God. So how do you want to learn from Jesus to be able to not be led astray and getting out of the will of God? Follow his example. Follow his example. Watch and pray lest you be tempted to give in to your soul. Watch this. Watch, stay awake and do what? Keep your spirit man. In conversation with God, pray. Keep your spirit, man, talking to the Father. See, the devil's tempting his soul big time here to the fact he's going to spend three hours praying to not give in to his soul. This is how you gain victory over the old soulish nature. This is how you don't fall prey to the old will of the old Adamic fallen nature. This is how you walk in victory in the realm of the Spirit. So when he was being tempted to get out of the will of the Father... He is now telling them, this is what you need to learn. Satan's going to tempt you just like me. He's going to tempt you to get in the soul and do what your soul's telling you to do. I'm telling you how to avoid it. Here's how you avoid it. You can't do it by sleeping and praying. You got to stay awake spiritually. You got to connect with the Father, and you got to truly stay connected with him in communication with him, because as you're doing that, guess what you're doing? You're getting stronger spiritually. And if you stay connected with the Father... Guess what's going to happen? You'll overcome that old fleshly nature. Notice the next statement, the bottom part of verse 41. You ought to really recognize this verse, part of this verse, and never forget it. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So where's the problem when it comes to carrying out the will of God in our life? If we carry out the will of God, what are we walking in? Let me help you. You're walking in the spirit, so you're walking in the higher nature. If we're out of the will of God, guess what we're doing? We're not walking in the spirit because he's a spirit. We're walking in our soulish nature. We're walking in our lower nature. Correct? Our spirit's willing. What's the spirit willing to do? He's always willing to do whatever the father wants. Right? Where's the problem at? In the weakness of the flesh. If you give in to the weakness of the flesh by not doing what? Staying spiritually strong. If you don't stay spiritually strong and connected to the father and keep your spirit dominant... Guess what's going to happen? You'll give in to the weakness of the flesh. Mm -hmm. Say, Spirit's willing. Say it this way. My spirit spirit is willing, willing, always willing willing to do the will of the Father. The 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 problem problem is in the flesh. See, that's where the weakness lies. And if we don't actually continue to stay in connection with the Father in prayer, keep our spirit man strong, guess who's going to dominate? The weakness of the flesh. We'll give in to the weakness of the flesh and then we'll get out of the will of God and what, what do we do then? We come back down to this lower life, this lower nature instead of the higher life. Tell your neighbor, I think I'm glad I came tonight. Praise the Lord. Verse Notice this 42. So again a second time. A second time, he's, he's so in agony in this type of prayer, he goes back again a second time and he prayed, oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Now realize, you're not getting the whole prayer. He didn't just pray that. He told us not to just repeat a prayer over and over and over and over. So he's not sitting there for an hour just praying that one thing over and over and over. It, it's the gist of what he's talking to the father about. But he goes back a second hour. A second hour. He's already prayed one hour to deal with his soulish uh, aspect of his uh, being that does not, in essence, want to carry out the will of God. And so he goes back and addresses it a second time, 43. Then he comes back and he found them doing what? Now, you think after the first time they'd have done something to stay awake. You'd think, right? I mean, if I got caught sleeping by Jesus and he told me to stay awake... Man, when he left the second time, are you kidding? I'd say, John, here you go. Here's a whole bunch of little rocks. You keep them right next to you. If I start sleeping, man, you just, palm, you just start pouncing me on the head with those rocks. And I'll do the same for you, praise God. Amen. <laughs> amen. I'd have found a way. That's right. I'd have tried to found a way to stay awake. How about you? Yes, nope. They slept again, 44. So he left them. Fine. See, he didn't need their prayers. He was trying to teach them something. He's trying to show them how to walk in this higher nature. How many understand, think about it now, what's he going to do? He's going to go to the cross. He's going to be scourged and he's going to go to the cross, right? Does that sound like fun? Does that sound like a joyous thing? Then he's going to be separated from the Father as he is dying, obviously, on that cross, giving up his life to go into hell itself. Does that sound like fun? Now, see, here's the thing you got to understand. Carrying out what is the higher way of God doesn't always look that way in the natural in the natural, this certainly did not look like the higher way of God, but it was. It's total victory for all the world. See, you don't always see what God sees, and when you're governing yourself out of your spirit, man, what are you not going by? Natural reasoning. What are you going by? What your spirit man knows, and according to the will of God, and the word of God, you're going according to what your spirit man knows, and therefore you got to understand. That's why we don't reason everything out to decide what we do. We follow the leading of the Holy Spirit if you want to walk in the higher will, higher will and higher nature of God. Anybody want to do that? So 44, so he left them, went away again. He prayed a third time, saying the same words. He came back to his disciples and said to them, or basically saying the same words means talking about the same thing. Notice this. He comes back and he says to his disciples, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hours at hand. And the son of man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So understand what he's showing us here is a perfect picture of Jesus, the the spirit, uh, Jesus, the soul, and Jesus, the body. What's he doing? He's teaching us about this battle. Is the battle between his spirit and his body? No. Where's the battle? Spirit and soul. Where's your battle? Spirit and soul. Lower nature, higher nature. So he continues to press through in prayer. He gets his soul subjected to the will of the Father and says, yep, your will, Father, be done in Jesus' name. And guess what his body now does? Carries it out. He goes and submits to those who come and get him when Judas comes, and he actually carries out what God's plan was, the higher life, the higher way. So the body's just going to carry out what it's told. Understand the significance of this as it relates to me and you, Functioning under God's design to walk in the higher life God has for us. Could I get an amen on that? So let's talk about some things that will help us to do that. Go to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It's one thing to know that that is exactly how. I hope you don't forget this story about this uh, account of Gethsemane. And if you ever want to see an example ever, if you ever just want to take a moment and refresh yourself of an example of what it looks like To walk out what we're supposed to walk out, spirit, soul, and body, there you go. That's one of the greatest examples of Jesus' life where he truly proves to us that you don't have to give in to your soul, that you should not. You should never, ever go the way of the soul. You and I should never make a decision based on what our soul wants to do. As it relates to things, obviously, uh, in relationship to how we live our lives, etc. It's like I told you. I, I'm not telling you here that if you stand on a street corner, then if you're going to cross the street and you look down and see a car coming, you don't need your, your spirit to tell you don't step out there. Your reasoning says don't do that. We understand those, those basic things of life. But I'm talking about walking in the higher life that God has for you of what you want to do day in and day out. Who needs to dominate? Your spirit. And when your spirit, now listen, not just dominate, but when your spirit gets your soul to hook up, and this is what Jesus did in prayer, he got, his, he got his soul subjected to his spirit and the will of God, right? And when that happened and now his body connects and carries it out, now you've got all three parts working together, and guess what? God's power goes into operation, and he actually fulfills the will of the Father. I'll tell you how powerful that was. Because understand this, Jesus at the scourging lost so much blood. When he got to the actual cross, there wasn't hardly any blood left. And when you get beyond what they say is a normal actual outflow of blood from your body, guess what your body then starts bringing out of it? Water that's the reason when they pierced his side some blood did come out but blood and water came out why he had draw he literally had almost all the blood you know uh you could take from uh your body being done uh, uh in his case during the scourging amen how many of you know that was going to take some supernatural strength to carry out the will of god and to get through that but because he had all three parts connected guess what he walked in over the cross yes what he walked in over the cross dominion Dominion, higher life He walked in that dominion and overcame the cross. Amen. amen. We know because he, they didn't kill him; amen. he he yielded his life up, gave his life up. First Corinthians chapter three. You with me? Yes. So let's look at me and you now, and let's learn some stuff from what we can see from a type and shadow in the Old Testament. What we're going to connect now with the new that will help us learn how to walk out what we just saw Jesus do. First Corinthians chapter three, verse five. If you're there, say Amen. amen watch this who then is paul and who is apollos but ministers through whom you believed notice this as the lord gave to each one so he's talking to the corinthians which he was referring to them preaching the gospel to them how did they actually get to believe through what paul and apollos had spoken to them look at verse six i planted apollos watered but god did what he gave the increase. Verse 7, notice, so then neither it, uh, neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Verse 8, now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now look at verse 9. This is what I wanted to get to. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's what? Field. Underline this. You are God's building. Underline that. You are God's building. See, the Corinthians are already born again. So he's writing to a church here in Corinth, and he's saying, listen, they were arguing about, well, I belong to Paul, well, I belong to Paulus. No, you don't. All we did, one planted, one watered. God gave the increase. But the point I want you to get across here to you is in verse 9. He's telling them, you're God's building. Now, that was significant to them because guess what? Actually had just left the actual temple of God after Jesus had raised from the dead, the presence of God. And now he's referring to them as that building. You are God's building. I'll show you this. He brings it back up. Go down to verse 16, same chapter, verse 16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God? Same thing as saying that temple that they had there of Solomon's temple of which God had them build in Solomon's day for the presence of God. And now he's calling what? Us. That temple. See, a lot of people just look at this and they just think, yeah, we're the temple of God. God lives in us. No, he is referring to something significant about God's design of man. And I'm going to show you that. So he says, you are what? You're God's temple. And the Spirit of God dwells where? Where does he dwell? He dwells in you. So he tells them two separate things here, which they totally picked up on and understood, because when he referred to that building or that temple, and saying, okay, guess what? Now, we don't look to that temple or that building to where God resides. Guess what? You're now that building. You're now that temple. Do you understand the temple of the Old Testament wasn't something God just came up with out of nowhere and just said, hey, man, here's a good idea. Let's make this temple, and if you'll make this temple and we'll have blood sacrifices, we can atone for your sin. Guess what the temple was? It was a picture of man. Temple's a picture of us. If you understand that, what you begin to do is you begin to learn about how you function as a three-part being just like the temple. Yep. Amen. So the temple is nothing more than a type and shadow of me and you. That's right. It's what God wanted us to see about us. And by the Old Testament context of what was done... Yes, until the blood of Jesus came along, they had to keep going in there and offering blood sacrifices. But even after us receiving Jesus now as the blood sacrifice for our life, guess what we now are? We're that temple. Meaning what? So what they did in that day has significance for us. What was in that temple has significance for us. Because guess what? That's us now. It always was. It represented mankind. That temple wasn't just a building to build. It represented man himself. It represented God's creation. God never wanted a building with hands to inhabit, right? When he created Adam and Eve, man, he was with them all the time. His presence was in them. But when they died spiritually, what happened? His presence had to leave them. And so now God no longer has a temple that he wanted to live in. So temporarily, guess what he has to do? Substitute a natural temple for man of a picture of what you and I can learn from in the New Testament of how that shows us God's design. That temple of the Old Testament shows us the design of God for our life, of how we function still as a spirit with a soul and a body. Amen. And when we learn this, we pick up on a powerful truth that will help us learn how to function like Jesus functioned. Amen. Say, I am his building. I am his building. Say, I am, I am the temple. So he's literally in the New Testament referring you directly as that temple now. Go to Hebrews chapter 9, Hebrews 9. Most of you know this, but you know, when Jesus died on the cross, the moment he died and, and gave up his life, literally just yielded his life on that cross, what happened to the, at the temple? The the so the huge veil that stood between what? What did the veil stand between? So the veil stood, there was three parts. We're going to go over it. The veil, you want to take notes on this tonight. The the veil stood for a place that separated what was called the initial inner court or the holy court, but then behind it was the holy of holies. Now, the priest would go into that inner court all the time and serve. Zacharias was in there when he was told about John's birth. But behind that holy of holies, only the high priest could go once a year. Question, what was in the holy of holies? What else was in there? Ark of Covenant was. What else was in there? The Shekinah glory of God. God's in that temple. His presence is in that inner court. But the day Jesus died, that temple, uh, excuse me, that, that big old heavy curtain was rent in two top to bottom. And guess what happened? The presence of God came out of there. Do you know why? Because God doesn't need a physical building any longer. He's now got us back. But he don't want us to function without the inner court, without the Holy of Holies. He wants us functioning as a whole man, just like the temple. Can I get a better amen? amen? When you and I function as a whole man, when we function in relationship to God's design, that's your kind of glory, that presence of God is in us. And that's your kind of glory can come through our soul and in and through our bodies and into this world, Amen. lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. How's that going to happen? Presence of God. Come on somebody. How are the gifts of the spirit going to manifest? Presence of God. Where is He? He's in you. Well, the reason we're not seeing a lot of God's design of dominion in the earth, that power's not being released because it can't get out. We are God's, bo- we, excuse me, we are the body of Christ. He's the head, we're the body. Sure, God could do anything he wants, but guess what he's chosen to do? Function through me and you. How's he going to establish his dominion today? Through me and you. Right? When he said, literally, you and I know this, when he said that you and I are to go lay hands on the sick, what are we? The body of Christ. We're just his body. We're just his hands. Where's his Shekinah glory now? Inside me. But guess what I need to do? I need to have my lower nature in submission... So that I'm now operating out of my higher nature through my soulish man and through my body and I can see the dominion that he created us to walk in function. Sumrall learned this. Dr. Sumrall learned you will never release or see the power of God work in your life if you cannot get the spirit man to break through the old fleshly nature. If the spirit man cannot break through that old fleshly nature, you will not see the power of God functioning in your life. Doesn't mean you might not see it through somebody else, but you won't see it through you. So the only way you're going to see the power of God, the dominion of God, the authority of God. See, a lot of people use the name of Jesus, but it doesn't work. Why? They're not functioning out of their spirit. They're saying those things out of their soul. But when you speak the name of Jesus with a belief in your heart, come on, if you believe in your heart when I speak that name, something's going to happen. And your soul doesn't obviously counter that by saying, well, I don't know if I believe that or not and and cause you to say that. Listen. If you don't think your soul can't circumvent the power of God, go back to Zacharias' story. Exactly. That's a picture. Right? Angel shows up. You're going to have a son. Got to bring this son forth. He's a forerunner for Jesus. Well, I just don't see how that's going to happen. Did he believe the angel? No. What did he do? What did he do? What did the angel do to Zacharias? Shut his mouth up. You ain't talking, son. Why? If God can just do whatever he wants, why shut up Zacharias' mouth? Because your words are powerful. And if you, even knowing the will of God in your spirit as the angel now revealed it, allow your soul to circumvent it, you'll stop that power from working. This is why we got to get back to God's design of the spirit dominating, the soul getting put in position of submission like in that garden of Gethsemane. And the body, that will just carry out what we tell it to do through our spirit, man, uh, operating to our soul. And guess what will happen? The power of God will work. Yes. Amen. Dominion will ha- actually take place. Any good amens on that? Yes. So watch this. Hebrews chapter 9, you there? Yes. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 says that indeed, notice this, even the first covenant, first covenant, Old Testament, had ordinances of divine service and, er- and the earthly sanctuary. So we know what he's referring to. He's referring to that temple, which over in Corinthians, Paul just said, guess what? You're that temple. You're now that temple. Verse 2, for a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, notice this, in which was the lampstand, the first inner court, the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. The table's referring actually there to an altar of incense. Three things were in that inner court. I'm going to give them to you in just a minute. There was the, ta- the lampstand, there was the altar of incense, and there was the showbread. The table here is referring to that altar of where the incense was. Verse 3, behind the second veil into the holy of holies, behind that second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all. Verse 4, notice this, which had what? It had the golden censer, and it had the Ark of the Covenant, but notice this, overlaid with, on all sides with gold, in which were, what was in that ark? Golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that had budded, and what? The tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Uh, these things we cannot now speak in detail. So what he's telling us right here very clearly is you and I got to understand, yes, there was an Old Testament uh, tabernacle. These are the things that were in it. But guess what? We're now that temple. That tabernacle represented us. Yes. Yeah. That tabernacle just represented man. I'm going to show you. I'm going to prove it to you. Verse 6, moving on. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing what? The services. Doing what they were supposed to do. Guess what you're supposed to be doing now? You're supposed to be working on that inner court. That's right. Not the Holy of Holies. Guess what the inner court is? Your soul. soul. I'm about to show you that. Just a real quick, and I'm going to go over this in detail, okay? The outer part of the, court, the, outer part of the temple, your building. Oh, excuse me, the outer part of the temple, your body. It's the overall building. The outer part of that temple is your, represents your body. That initial inner court is your soul. The Holy of Holies is your spirit man, where the Holy Spirit now is. It's is a picture of you. If you get this picture of you, it'll help you function in God's design. Because God's design never changed. No, it didn't. All he did in the Old Testament is he set something up to show them of what was to come, of them once again becoming the temple. And what they saw for years in sacrifices with that temple, God, after Jesus coming and dying for us, now says, We're back to where we were at the start. We're back. You're a three part being. But you can learn from what I showed them through the temple of how you can function together as an entire being with all three things functioning together as one. Any good amens on that? So watch this very clearly. He goes on here in verse 7 and says, But into the second part the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Verse 8, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all, was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. God couldn't get back into the heart of man yet as long as that first tabernacle was standing. He was in that holy of holies, but not in the holy in the context of the heart of, the, of man. Verse 9, it was symbolic. What was it again? Symbolic. Tell me out loud, please. Symbolic. This is the New Testament, folks. Yeah. We're not making something up here. It was symbolic. Notice, for the present time. Now that you're born again you're to learn from it it was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are what offered when notice this which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience talking about the old context of sacrifices 10 notice concerned with only uh concerned only with foods and drinks various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation, which has now come. Verse 11, but Christ, Amen. come on, Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come Amen. with the greater and more perfect tabernacle Amen. not made with hands that is not of this creation. That tabernacle is you. I said, that tabernacle is you. He didn't shed his blood for a physical tabernacle. He shed it for you. You are 1 Corinthians 3, God's building. You are now that temple. Learn from it. Learn from it. Verse 12, he did not do this with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place in heaven once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats... And the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean under the Old Testament sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. What's your conscience? The voice of your spirit. So he is now through his shed blood, obviously cause your spirit to be reborn, to where now even the voice of your spirit, man, has been cleansed from dead works. What does it mean my conscience has been cleansed from dead works? What's your conscience again? Voice Voice of your spirit. When you do wrong, when you sin, what happens? What's the first thing you notice? Your conscience convicts you. See, your conscience has been cleansed from dead works because your spirit's been made new. The voice of your spirit can now be trusted. Your conscience is the voice of your spirit. So you can now trust your conscience because your your spirit being made brand new is not going to tell you wrong. Verse 15, for this reason he is what? Jesus is a mediator of the new covenant by means of death. For the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise. May receive what? The promise. May receive what? The promise of the eternal inheritance. Which is what? have dominion over the works of God's hands. Amen. Preaching better now Hallelujah. than your amen. This is, he's saying that you can now walk in this aspect of what we've, what we've given you to walk in as a child of God under the New Testament. And now that we understand that was symbolic of what now is you. It was always just a picture of mankind. And now that Jesus shed his blood to once again re-inhabit your holy of holies, We don't need that physical temple anymore. You're now that temple. But the way that temple functioned is the way you function. He didn't change his design. It's all he could do at the time temporarily until he could get man re-inhabited with the presence of God. But that temple, obviously doing what God told them to do in that temple was what kept the presence of God there and also kept the children of God protected through what they had to do. Any good amens on that? So let me go through this with you. If you want to write them down, you can. I'm going to give you uh, scripture references for each one. This is powerful. So we're going to look at a picture again of the temple itself, right? Because that's now what? That's now shown clearly to me and you as a type and shadow, a symbol of me and you, of mankind. Anybody still have a problem with that or you got that figured out? This was symbolic, symbolic to reveal me and you, amen? Amen. We'll come back over this on Sunday. So the outer court, say the outer court. So the outer court is outside that inner court. When they actually came to the building, there was what was known as an outer court. There was two things there. Does anybody remember what was there? There was the altar where they brought the sacrifices, where the bodies had to be sacrificed and burnt, right? And then what was right before they entered into the inner court? There was a laver, like a big wash basin where the priests would have to wash themselves before they walked into that inner court. Amen? So this represents me and you. The outer court or the outer part of the actual tabernacle represents your body. Mm -hmm. Guess what you're supposed to do with your body according to the Bible. So let's start with the altar. The altar is a place of sacrifice. Write down Romans 12, 1. Romans 12, 1. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to offer your body as a living sacrifice. How many want to walk as a total man? Yeah. How many want to walk under the design of God? Yeah. Well, here's the picture. Here's the picture. Right. So you got to do what? You got to present your body as a living sacrifice. They had to bring the bodies of those animals yeah. right. and burn them on that altar. Right. Mm-hmm. Amen? Our God's a consuming fire. Yes, we need to offer our bodies up, Romans 12, 1, as a living sacrifice. Right? right. And then what's the second thing we're supposed to do yet with the outer man? Be water baptized. What did the labor represent? Water baptism. Romans 6, 4. Write that down. Romans chapter 6, verse 4. The Bible says that you were buried with Christ through baptism. So one, I offer my body as a living sacrifice. Two, through water baptism, symbolic of the temple, through actual water baptism, what am I saying? I died with Christ. Meaning what? Body? uh, not referring so much specifically to the outer body, but the fleshly nature. Fleshly nature, you're not going to control me. I died with Jesus. That old fleshly nature died with Jesus. Shout amen, somebody. So the outer court represents what again? Altar, I give myself as a living sacrifice. Laver, I am water baptized for the remission of sin. Romans 6, 4, so that I having been buried with Christ through baptism. That's Romans 6, 4. You were buried with Christ through baptism. What do you mean buried? That old nature. That old nature was buried. When you get water baptized, do you bury the old nature? No. You're just acknowledging that it's been buried. There's nothing about water that causes that old nature to die. If that was the case, you didn't need faith in Jesus. What's water baptism? It's a symbolic act of saying that old nature died with Christ. That man's gone. And when I come up out of that water, I have been raised up a new man. So literally this represents the outer court of the temple represents our bodies and what we're supposed to do. How many want to walk in God's design? So that's what you got to do with the body. Then you come to the inner court, say inner court. So in the inner court, there were three things in that inner court. One, there was the altar of incense, write that down. The three things. So these, this is the area you got to focus on. What you got to focus on primarily is that actual inner court which represents your soul because your biggest problem is your soul. Your biggest problem is not your body. Your body's going to carry out what your soul tells it to do. What you got to do like a priest going in that inner court and ministering in that inner court is you got to minister to God by dealing with your soul. If you'll deal with your soul the way you're supposed to biblically, guess what? You'll get that soul subjected to the spirit man Come on, just like Jesus did, and the spirit will rise up and dominate. So in that inner court was the altar of incense. This represents the mind. This represents the mind. Remember, the soul repre- has this, the, 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 excuse me, the inner court represents the soul, okay? In the inner court, your soul, there's three parts, mind, will, and emotions. There was three things in that inner court, right? Yes. Altar of incense represents the mind. This is Dr. Sumrall's teaching. Altar of incense represents the mind because we got to recognize the significance of our thoughts, Mm -hmm. our reasonings, our mind just rising up from within us of wanting to reason things out. That's the altar of incense. Our actual minds are supposed to be subjected to what we know is the will of God that becomes now a pleasing aroma to him, our thought life, what we think about. The second thing that was in that inner court, the soul represented by man's body, is now the, is recognized as the showbread. What's the showbread? That's the will of God. Excuse me, that's your will. Sorry, that's your will. I'm talking about you. Let me not get confused here. Inner court soul. Your soul has mind, will, and emotions. First part, altar of incense, the mind. The mind has to be continually dealt with in relationship to the way you think and the way you do stuff is you don't just reason it out, do whatever you want. No, you do that which is pleasing to God in your thinking in line with what your spirit man knows. Amen? Second thing that was there was the actual showbread. They had to actually replace that showbread once a week. That showbread represents the will. Write down, I didn't give you a scripture for the altar of incense. Yeah, I did, Romans 12.2. Did I do that? Okay, I'll give it to you, Romans twelve two. So I have to deal with my mind, Romans twelve two by the consistent renewal of my mind. They had to consistently renew that, those incense on that altar all the time. You listening? They had to constantly, continually renew those incense on that altar all the time. So what does this represent? Us renewing our minds, Romans 12, 2. I need to focus more on my notes so I don't get you so confused. Romans 12.2, we got to renew the mind. How do you get transformed? Altar of incense is your mind. Romans 12.2, that's the uh, renewing of our minds is how our lives get transformed. Second part of your soul, showbread which rep- represents what? The will of man. Write down Matthew 4.4. 4. Matthew 4.4. 4. How do we know the will of God? Through the word of God. Correct? What did Jesus say in Matthew 4.4? Man doesn't live by bread alone, but by Every word of God. How do we subject our quote unquote will to God's will? By subjecting ourselves to the word. We subject ourselves to the word. We don't live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from God. That deals with us living by every word that comes from God means we're carrying out his will. Yes. If you're living by every word that comes from God, whose will are you doing? God's will. God's will. And then the third area in there was the lampstand. Remember the lampstand with the seven, uh, seven different uh, little pods of oil uh, lamps on there? So this represents your emotions. Think about your emotions, how they flicker all the time. Right? So the lampstand represents your emotions. What do I do with the emotions? James 1, 19 and 20. Write that down. James 1, 19 and 20. You know what James 1, 19 and 20 says? Be quick to hear... Be slow to speak, and therefore slow to what? Wrath, anger. To let your emotions get out of hand. Be quick to hear, be slow to speak. So we don't want to allow our emotions just to flicker off and do whatever they want. We gotta do what? We gotta pay attention to what God says by being quick to hear and therefore slow to speak. So again, inner court, altar of incense represents what? The mind. Romans 12, 2, you got to renew it. Showbread represented what? The will. Matthew 4, 4, you don't live by bread alone, every word that comes from God. The lampstand in that inner court represented what? Your emotions. James 1, 19 and 20. So what do we need to do here? We need to constantly renew our mind, keep our will in line with the word, and keep our emotions under control by continually doing what? Being quick to hear, slow to speak. Amen? Then you go into the Holy of Holies and in the Holy of Holies was not only the Shekinah glory of God but was also what? It was also the Ark of the Covenant. So that Holy of Holies represents what? That represents me and you. That represents the spirit of man because where's the Holy Spirit now? He ain't in that that building made with hands anymore. He's in our spirit. Say my spirit (coughs) is represented by the Holy of Holies. So the Holy of Holies is what represented our spirit man which obviously that Ark of the Covenant was in there and the presence of God. What was in the Ark? Watch this. First and foremost were the Ten Commandments. Remember the Ten Commandments were put in that Ark? Write this down, Jeremiah 31, 33. Jeremiah 31, 33. Guess what God said in Jeremiah 31, 33? I'm going to write my commandments in your heart. There's coming a new covenant. If you go read Jeremiah 31 up a little ways before that, he tells the children of Israel, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. Amen. Meaning what? The one we're now under. Right. Amen. They already had a covenant with him, but I'm going to make a new one. And when that new covenant comes, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to now write my laws in your heart. I wrote them on stone. They're inside that tabernacle. They're in the ark of the covenant, but they're going to be in your heart. When you get born again, those Ten Commandments will now live in your heart. Oh, yes. Amen? Yes. The second thing that what was, remember else, what was it? That's Jeremiah 31, 33. 31, 33. I'm going to write my laws on your hearts. Then the second thing that was in there was Aaron's rod. Right? Aaron's rod, I mean, if you cut a rod off, you cut its access off like a branch from a vine. You cut it off, guess what it doesn't do? It don't bud but it did what does it represent write down John 15 4 John fifteen four. what it represents is, is the moment you and I got connected to the vine he took this dead old branch and he brought fruit forth guess what he did with that rod he brought fruit forth from that rod representing what that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes and you get connected to the vine you old dead branch aren't going to be a dead branch anymore you're going to now bring forth fruit so, this represents your spirit man coming to life. Amen. Connecting to the vine, you're the branch, you now bear fruit. Yes. The last thing I want you to see this go to John 6, because I want you to see this last one. Are you learning anything yet? Yes. We'll go back over this on Sunday. But this is what he gives us God, think about this God, all through eternity, in, in relationship to what he's always done with man, and aspects of, I say, eternity, all the history of mankind, all through the history of mankind, what's he always done? He's given us a picture, mm-hmm. something to learn from, right? In marriage, he gave us a picture, Jesus in the church, right? Well, guess what he did with that, ta- that tabernacle? Well, once man sinned, I could no longer live in man. I'm going to have him build a tabernacle that will show them what's to come. And I will be able to watch over them. This is mankind being protected. Amen. The tabernacle representing mankind. This is me to protect mankind till Jesus can come. And when Jesus comes, now we're back to you being that temple. Yes. But in the midst of all those sacrifices, he was shown a picture of what you and I can now see of how to walk with it in, in the relationship to what in God's design is as a total man. What was the third thing in that? The manna. The manna. The manna. I want you to see this. John chapter 6. You still with me? John chapter 6 verse 57. I love this stuff, man. John chapter 6 verse 57. Jesus said, As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. He who feeds on me will live because of me. 58. This is the bread which came down from heaven, Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead, he who eats this bread will live forever. So he's even referring to that manna of which they had also put in the Ark of the Covenant. And so he said, I'm not referring to that manna, I'm referring to a new bread. Verse 59, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can, who can understand it? Because he talked about eating his bread, drinking his, uh, drinking his blood. So notice, that, who can understand it? Man, this is a difficult saying. I don't know, man. I don't know if we can figure this out or not. And in verse 61, Jesus knew in himself his disciples complained about this. So he said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The fresh prophets what? Now, that's a whole other subject in itself and what we're talking about here. But if you, are being, if you are being controlled and functioning out of your soulish nature, guess what? Your flesh will profit you nothing. nothing right? But guess what your spirit will do? Right. It'll give you life, Zo- the Zoe God kind of life. Yes. It is the spirit who gives life, the flesh profit, profits nothing. Notice this, the words that I speak to you, excuse me? The, word, the words that I speak to you, what are they? The Tell me out loud what did he refer to before that this isn't like the manna that your fathers had back under the old testament but here's what you got to learn if you want to walk in this new zoe life this higher life this higher dominion life we're going to get into this in detail in this series you must feed your inner man on the word of god amen you listening? Yes. You got to renew your soul to get it in there, but you got to get it into your spirit man. Yes. And until that, that word, that man, it gets into that inner holy of holies. Mm-hmm. No faith is there. Mm-mm. No power is being released. You listening? Yes. See, when you come to the place in your spirit that you know that you know that you know, guess what? That, that issue that you now know of, that issue is no longer an issue for you. Right. Whatever problem it was, whatever you're facing, it's, a, it's over with. Because once your spirit knows it, now all it has to do is do what? Acknowledge that through your soul, by your soul speaking it, and your body carries it out by acting upon it, and the power of God goes into operation. But the problem is, we do not most of us don't have that manna, that fresh manna in our spirit man. Where was that manna? Inside the Ark of the Covenant and that Holy of Holies in your spirit man. And Jesus is telling you and me in John 6, this ain't like that manna, I got manna for you. Yeah. But it ain't like that. And he's using that as an example to say, because they knew where that manna was now. Yeah. They're not out. In the, Jesus is here. They're not in the wilderness anymore. But guess where that manna was? It was in that Holy of Holies. Right. Representing their spirit man. Yeah. And you got to recognize the words I'm speaking. There, This is what he said. I want you to see this again. I got to get this in here real quick in closing. I want you to see this. Look at this statement. Verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. So where is this life going to zoe life going to come from up out of our spirit man yeah. it is the spirit who gives life the flesh profits nothing it's not going to come through your soul it's going to come out of your spirit through your soul yeah. the words i speak to you are what they are spirit in their life let me say it this way verse 63 here's what he just told you the words that i'm speaking to you the word i'm giving to you he's referring to man of the old testament the manna that i have for you you ready it is spirit food spirit to your spirit man It is spirit food to your spirit man. You need this spirit food to get into your spirit man. And as you'll see as we go through this series, it is the word of God that has to be able to take dominance of your life. And you have to learn how to utilize that word in your life in multiple ways to get that spirit man stronger and to rise up and dominate. Because once you do, now the soul doesn't have an option. You listening? Jesus was the Word, but he became so full of the Word even as a young boy. Remember at age 12 that he even gets left behind and his parents come and find him and says, "What? I got to be about my father's business. He's full of the Word. As a 12-year-old boy, he's not even concerned. He's he's literally there by himself for three days. He has no relatives there in Jerusalem. He didn't care. He's not soul-driven. He's spirit-driven. Because he has the word in him. He knows that he's supposed to be carrying out the Father's will. So say it. God's word is spirit food to my spirit man. You got to get this manna. You got to get this manna from heaven. The spirit, the word of God into your spirit man for your spirit man to become stronger and dominate. So your soul will get subjected to it. Come on. And your body will just carry it out. And now you'll see the power of God function. When you get something in your spirit, man, let me help you. When you get something determined in your spirit, man, no matter what it is, I guarantee you there ain't no bit of your flesh that's going to stop you. No, that's right. That's a fact. fact. Let me close with a fun story. Can I do that? John Osteen, who was our pastor's pastor for 27 years, he talked about this in relationship to learning about the spirit, soul, and body. (laughs) He taught on it in the latter part of his life. He said, I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and I never understood that we are a spirit, have a soul, live in a body. I never knew that. Until he started hearing Brother Hagin's teachings on it, all of a sudden he started picking up on it and started teaching himself. He said, I can see how a lot of that's worked in my life, but now I understand it better than ever that I obviously am a spirit, have a soul, live in a body. you got to understand that back in their early days of ministry, nobody taught what we're teaching you. Brother Hagin said, everybody thought we were a soul. Right. I asked every great minister of God I knew, are we, are we a spirit or a soul? We're a soul. Yeah. We, we go out saving souls. We're a soul. You're just a soul. That's all you are. And he didn't realize that we were a spirit man until he himself started seeing it by Jesus showing it to him. So John Osteen picks up on it, started teaching his congregation. He said, let me tell you how, how powerful your spirit is. When you get something down into your spirit man determined to do it, Even in relationship to something that's good, obviously, which would be in line with God's will, I'll guarantee you, your flesh is done with. Mm -hmm. Your Your flesh will not stop you. He said, my mama, everybody knew my mama dipped snuff. She loved to dip snuff. This woman was a snuff dipper all of her life. It's kind of funny because she would try to, I'd think of Kathy's grandma. Uh, I, she would try to hide the cans. She'd send me down all the time to the street corner to get Garrett, you know, and there's different types of chews she liked and stuff. And I'd bring him home. She'd hide him. He said, Mama, why are you hiding it? Everybody knows you chew tobacco. <laughs> what are you hiding it for? Well, her daddy excuse me, his daddy, her husband, did not like her dipping snuff, especially when they went to smooching. He did not want her dipping snuff. So he kept telling her time and time again, I want you to stop dipping snuff. Oh, I can't. I can't. Oh, she kept saying, I can't. I can't. No, I can't. I've tried. I can't. And one time, I mean, this is like years and years ago, back in depression days, he said, listen, I'll give you a hundred. He pulled out a hundred dollar bill. I'll give you a hundred dollars to go do whatever you want, do shop, shop for some, I don't care, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you'll quit, you know, dipping that snuff. She said, I just can't do it. She turned down a hundred bucks, he said, like in his day, when he was preaching this, it'd be like somebody offering you a thousand. Right. I mean, seriously, he said, my mama, she likes shopping, but she turned down that hundred bucks and said, no, I can't do it. Well, my daddy then passed away later on. And when my daddy passed away, my mama said, and this is an old saying from back in the day, I'm setting my hat for a husband. My cap, I'm setting my cap for a husband. I mean, I'm going to find me a husband. And he said, man, when she said that, we said, watch out, man, she's going to find a husband. I guarantee you, my mom was determined. Well, she did find a guy, and she married him, 10 years younger than her. But before they married, guess what the guy said? I'm not going to marry you if you dip snuff. He said, isn't it interesting that she so badly wanted to get married that when he told her he wouldn't marry her if she was dipping snuff, guess how long it took her to stop dipping? That long. Now, you say what you want, but when she got it in her heart, That's right. when she got it in her heart to quit, guess what? Her flesh was no longer a problem. That's, right. That's how powerful your spirit is. Right. Amen. Can I get a better amen? amen? And folks, you and I need to understand that tabernacle is a picture. Amen. That tabernacle is a picture of me and you. It is a picture of man, God's creation, and how he designed for us to function under his original plan. It's a part of what you and I need to understand and know about as a believer referred to in the New Testament as something that was truly symbolic of me and you. Mm -hmm. And therefore, everything that happened within the aspect of that temple is stuff that we're supposed to learn of how we apply it to our life because if we do, guess what happens? We don't just function with an inner court and an outer court. Come on. We have the inner, inner, the Holy of Holies as the dominant one and therefore, hearing from God. Amen. Come on. Yeah, Knowing what God wants us to know. But guess where it's coming through? It's coming out of that holy of holies Amen. into the inner court, mm-hmm. changing what your soul thinks, right. and then going to the outside of the outer man who just carries it out. And when you do, now you've got the power of God functioning. Amen. Now you're walking in the dominion of God. God's design for man. Amen? Amen.